So Lawrence Rees is a British historian, he's a documentary filmmaker and author of several books about the atrocities committed by totalitarian states of the Second World War. He's former creative director of history programs for the BBC. So here to talk to us about Holocaust, Lawrence Rees. Yes. Yay. No, they turned it on. We're in great shape. Uh, so, yeah, terrific to be here. What a fantastic, um, what a fantastic theatre. Absolutely wonderful. Anyway, so lovely to be here. So I'm going to talk for half an hour about some basic background about this subject. And then um, I think Sam's back on and we'll just do some questions for 15 minutes or so. So Doctors in the Third Reich, I thought it would be interesting for you, because many of you obviously are doctors. And the crucial thing to understand about doctors is they were absolutely central to what happened in the Third Reich. They were absolutely core. So just some background. They were core, really, because of Hitler's fundamental belief, which, you can, which he expressed here. The state which, in this age of racial poisoning, dedicates itself to the care of the best racial elements must someday become lord of the earth. Now, he really, really believes this. This is the absolute central core belief of his entire ideological being, the, the, the goal of the racial state. He thinks that if you don't go towards having a racial state, you are finished. And if you have a racial state, you can do it. You will someday become lord of the earth because you're the one with the racial state. And what he means by a racial state is two things. The elimination of those people by one way or another who are not of your, quote, race. And he had this nonsense, of course, about the Aryan race. So anyone who wasn't an Aryan needs to be dealt with in one way or another. And secondly, and most importantly, or not most importantly, but as important, was the elimination within your race of weak elements. That's absolutely vital to him. He said in a speech in the 1920s, uh, before, long before he came to power, that if large numbers of babies were killed straight after they were born, if they were identified as being weak, the benefit to society would be huge. So this is the kind of thing he's saying even before he comes to power. So when he comes to power, this, the, 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 this central idea has immediate consequences for every single doctor, which is essentially that doctors now had to balance the health of the state along with the health of an individual. And the former, the state, always takes precedence. So immediately in 1933, when they come to power, they put in the most draconian sterilization laws of any country on Earth. And doctors are, of course, the ones who are deciding in the consultation room, or uh, often off bits of paper, they're deciding who should be sterilized and who shouldn't. And I've met people who were sterilized, one guy I met who was sterilized as a child. He was sterilized uh, because his father was an alcoholic and he was looked on as an asocial. So they're not sterilizing often purely on you know, medical grounds necessarily. They're also getting into social questions about the kind of people we wish in this racial state. So doctors are absolutely central to that. And you might think there would have been a revolution amongst right-thinking, truly ethical doctors. And they would have en masse refused to implement this. 
the contrary, I'm afraid to say. In actual fact, what happens is 45% of all German doctors became members of the Nazi party, one of the highest ratios of any profession. So doctors, as, as far as we can see, are embracing this. We know they're embracing these kinds of views also because of another statistic told, told me by Professor Sir Richard Edmund, uh, uh, Evans, uh, uh, Regis Professor of History at, at Cambridge. He said to me, and I still find it hard to believe, but he, he says it's right and it's good enough for me. By 1939, more than half of all university students in Germany were studying medicine. It's quite extraordinary. So there is a huge move towards medicine as a result of what people are seeing doctors being able to do. Doctors are enormously prestigious within the Nazi state. Doctors really are almost the most important individuals within the Nazi state because you can't create a racial state without the absolute cooperation, enthusiastic cooperation of large numbers of doctors. Also, of course, career-wise, there were now huge numbers of jobs, new jobs for doctors in the Nazi state, in the armed forces, the SS, and these institutes of racial hygiene. So it was an incredibly good career move as long as you weren't ethically challenged by the kinds of things that you were asked to do. So I'm going to talk now about three ways in which doctors actually committed murder and helped murder. Because doctors didn't just sterilize. Once the war happens, they become involved in committing murder. And the three, three ways I'm just going to run through briefly with you. The first way is the adult and child euthanasia schemes, which happened child euthanasia scheme develops just before the war, and the adult euthanasia scheme develops in the early months of the war. Euthanasia is wrong, but it's how it's referred to in the literature. It's what the Nazis called it, but it's murder. Selecting prisoners to die at Auschwitz. Doctors had an absolutely central role to what was happening at Auschwitz. And Auschwitz, as you know, is the site of the largest mass murder in the history of the world. And medical experiments, a whole vast range of medical experiments. So I'm going to talk briefly about each of, each of these three. Uh, it's a, this is the uh, execution chamber, the gas chamber at Brandenburg Euthanasia Hospital in Germany. It's a common misconception in this history that gas chambers are developed to kill Jews in large numbers. They're not. Gas chambers were developed uh, in medicine to kill adult, uh, mentally and physically disabled Germans and not just Germans, eventually becomes other adult, uh, mentally and physically disabled people who are within the Reich, the new Reich. But in 1940, here at Brandenburg, in January 1940, is the very first experiment with gassing. Gassing was devised by a doctor. It was devised by Dr. Albert Widman, who was a doctor of chemistry. Uh, he devised this method of killing because they were looking, as they thought, for a mass humane level humane way of killing in the adult euthanasia scheme of killing mentally and physically disabled people. It wasn't humane as it happens because there's all sorts of testimony showing that this is an absolutely vile and horrible way to die. It's not quick at all. But that was allegedly what the discussions were uh, uh, with Hitler about methods of killing. So what happened here at Brandenburg in January 1940 is they, they have an experiment. They bring in a number of people from an insane asylum, mental asylum, uh, and witnessing this are two of the most senior doctors in the Reich. Dr. Leonard Conti, who is the Reich medical leader, so like the, the top, single top doctor in the whole of the Reich, and Dr. Brandt, who is Hitler's own personal physician. So doctors are there witnessing this. They operate the killing. Uh, 
It's deemed successful, so they're using this method of killing in a number of euthanasia centers across Germany, long before any gassing of Jews, long before any uh, death camp is set up, way precedes this. Uh, the director of the Brandenburg Euthanasia Institute is a man called um, Dr. Imfried Ebel. Uh, he prides himself on always being the person to turn on the gas. This is a medical necessity. So a doctor must actually commit the act of murder. He always turns on the gas. And there's one quote from someone who worked for him and said, Ermfried uh, Ebel, Dr. Ebel would like to have gassed the world and his brother. He was very, very enthusiastic about this. So within the, euth within the euthanasia scheme, as I say, it develops only once the war starts. Now that's crucial. Um, uh, I know a lot of very gifted academics in this area who I've spent a lot of time chatting to, and I always remember what uh, uh, one of them, Professor at Brown, Omar Bartoff, said to me. He said, isn't it interesting that genocide always seems to happen either in a war or described as a war? And Hitler knew this. Hitler had said, uh, as early as the mid-30s, he'd said to his leading doctors, listen, we can't be more radical until there's a war. And it's no accident this is happening in a war. And you can see this from a quote from uh, one of the most enthusiastic doctors related to the euthanasia scheme, uh, Dr. Van Muller, who said, the idea is unbearable to me that the best, the flower of our youth, must lose its life at the front in order that feeble-minded and irresponsible asocial elements can have a secure existence in the asylum. So he sees this as a fundamental statement of human justice which is how is it possible to live in a society where we are losing our best and our brightest in the front line and these feeble-minded and irresponsible asocial elements are being watered and fed. This is absolutely, in, this is unconscionable. And, and Dr. Fanmuller, uh, he believes, for example, when uh, he's also involved in the killing of children and he kills the children most, mostly by starving them to death. And there's some terrifying descriptions of the asylums that he is responsible for of just systematically starving small children over a period. So this is, this is the kind of monstrous thing we're talking about these doctors doing. Uh, I mentioned uh, Dr. Ebel before, a view, his view around this, he was quoted as saying, just as all weeds needed to be destroyed, so people not worthy to live ought to disappear. Dr. Ebel, uh, I've made a special study of is an extra was, was, was a, 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 an individual who then went on in 1942 to be the first commandant of the Nazi extermination camp at Treblinka. Treblinka uh, was, after Auschwitz, the camp that murdered most people. Auschwitz, the death toll is assessed to be around 1,100,000 people. Treblinka, nobody knows the exact number. It's between 700,000 and 900,000. And Dr. Ebel was the person who set it up. He was the very first commandant, and he enthusiastically embraced this killing. Treblinka primarily was killing Jews taken from the Warsaw Ghetto. But what happened to Dr. Ebel was that he was dismissed in the summer of 1942, and he was dismissed not because of any ethical issues, because he wasn't killing uh, enough people. He was dismissed because he was killing too many people. He was dismissed because the fabric and structure of Treblinka was falling apart because he was accepting too many transports. So there are horrific 
scenes that are, uh, if Treblinka isn't horrific enough, there were horrific scenes of bodies everywhere. They weren't processing the transports as they wished, as they would have put it. Um, and he was presiding over all of this because he wanted to be seen, it appears, as the person who was the most enthusiastic, the most embracing of it all. Um, and he was dismissed in the summer of 1942 from, from Treblinka. Let's talk about Auschwitz briefly. This is one of the rarest photos uh, 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 in the world. This is, there's a very, what happened at Auschwitz was the state secret, the highest state secret you can imagine. And yet, we have a collection of photos that were taken off one or two transports of the arrival of Hungarian Jews in 1944. We don't know the circumstances primarily, exactly why they were taken. We think they're taken by an SS officer who just happened to have a camera and was in, you know, taking the photos. What you're witnessing there is a selection. Uh, these, this is a line of male Jews. This woman has come from the, 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 the line for women would be over here, and she's just crossing over and is looking at the camera as we go by. This is the line of male Jews. What happened when you arrived at Auschwitz was you were immediately told to go into one of two lines. Uh, adult males, one line. Women and children, another line. And then each line comes forward. and At the end of each line is a doctor. This man here on the left is an SS doctor. Doctors always did the selection. So this is a medical um, operation. And what he is doing here is giving this person a medical exam of about two or three seconds, uh, this charade. And he's now going to be directed one way or the other way. Uh, this way, immediate death. This way, you'll be worked to death. And as I say, it's perceived as a, as a, a medical decision. Actually, we know that as a general rule, if you were under 13 or in your uh, um, 40s, you were almost certainly sent immediately to be murdered. Uh, that would change, that could change according to circumstances, it could change according to particular demands and other needs, but as a general rule, that was what happened. Uh, we have a quote from one of the leading doctors at, uh, uh, at Auschwitz about how they're acting. Uh, and why he feels it's legitimate. Because again, there's no, uh, no evidence here of, of doctors rising in revolt about what they're being asked to do. Um, and this chap, Dr. Klein, said this is, this is how he looked at it. Of course, I am a doctor and I want to preserve life. And out of respect for human life, I would remove a gangrenous appendix from a diseased body. The Jew is the gangrenous, gangrenous appendix in the body of mankind. So, if you remember back to what I was talking about earlier, with Hitler's central view, Hitler could just as easily have said that. That's exactly Hitler's view, which is that there are two things we have to think about. The yes, the individual, but the state, the racial state. And the most important thing is the racial state. Uh, Hitler, when Hitler formed this view, it's very, very hard to, to know for sure. I think it's going on because of what he's witnessing in the First World War. There's a bit in his table talk, which is which a series of incredibly long monologues he'd, he would say after dinner to his acolytes in the Wolf's Lair in, uh, from about 1941 to onwards, and these were recorded, and we have these. And he said in one of these that he went into the First World War full of incredible idealism, and then what he witnessed, the destruction of individuals that he witnessed, 
And the First World War is a turning point in so many, so many ways with this history. But what he witnessed, essentially the evisceration of human beings under high explosion. This had never happened in Europe before in this way. Um, I mean, the reason we have the memorial at the Somme as we do is because, is because people died with, and there was no body. There hadn't been a, war, a European war that had ever happened in. They simply disappeared. Uh, and Hitler was witnessing this, and he came to the conclusion there about the, the, the horrific nature of human life, and that life is a struggle. And he came to the conclusion that the individual is, is, is nothing. The individual can be replaced. What matters, what matters is the, is the state. What matters is, um, is th as he saw it, this racial state that we have to create. So if, if these individuals are dying, that's great, because these people need to go. There's a whole other history as related to the Jews, which is a, a detailed and complex one, which I've written 200,000 words about in my, the recent uh, history of the Holocaust I've written that's just been out, so I, I'm, I'm not gonna get, out in the time I've got, I can't get into that with you. There's all sorts of reasons that they're particularly targeting the Jews, and the Jews, as they see it, are, are, are the central issue that has to be dealt with in the racial state. But nonetheless, the overall, the overall view as expressed by the doctor here uh, is, is symptomatic of it. Obviously, the most infamous doctor at Auschwitz, as you know, is Dr. Joseph Mengele. He was one of a large number of doctors that were working at Auschwitz, but he's the one that has come into public infamy, infamy uh, more than any other. I've met a number of people who dealt with Dr. Mengele at Auschwitz and described the experience to me. One of them, an amazing woman called Frieda Weinmann, who arrived at Auschwitz in summer of 1944 as a 20-year-old Jew from France. And she describes an extraordinary scene at, at Auschwitz. I opened the book with this, which is she arrives and they're taken off. They've no idea what this place is. They're taken off. She's there with her father, uh, her uh, uh, three brothers, I think, two or three brothers, and her mother. And when they get off, something extraordinary happens, which is the Zonda Commando, and the Zonda Commando are Jewish prisoners who are helping the uh, uh, Nazis organize things there, immediately shout, give the babies, give the babies to the old women, give the babies to the old women. And nobody knows why this is. And uh, Frieda's mother isn't old, she's only in her 40s. But because of what had happened in the war, her hair had turned white, and so, She's perceived as old, and so suddenly her, her, her mother is given by this 20-year-old or early 20s uh, Jew is given a baby, and so she has a baby. And they then join the line. Frida and her mother holding the baby, completely bemused, joins this line, and they move up. At the end of the line is Dr. Mengele, and uh, Mengele sends Frida one way and her mother and the baby the other, and then Frida tries to join her mother, and this is what happens. Dr. Mengele called me back and he said, you go to the left, and I said, no, I won't. I won't be separated from my mother. And he said, in the most natural way, your mother, she will be looking after the children and you will go with the young ones. That's the younger adults. And of course, it's a lie. The whole place is built at this stage on a, on a lie to the prisoners, which is that her mother and the baby are immediately taken away to be murdered in the gas chambers of Birkenau. And Frieda's granted a temporary stay of execution to work. Uh, and it's, it's this total inversion of values that I, I write about a lot in the book because what happens to, um, what happens to Frida is that her, one of her brothers, seeing their mother go off with the baby, says to their younger brother, who's 13, and exactly on the cusp of selection for life, life temporary life 
or immediate death. Frida's uh, father and her brothers have already been selected to go into the line which is going to be work. But her brother says to the younger brother, oh, you run off, you run off to, to mum and uh, uh, who's there with that baby because you'll be better treated. So he goes, he trots off, and they don't, the SS don't stop him. The SS don't stop him for two reasons. One, he's on the cusp anyway, and they're not that bothered. And secondly, because they couldn't do it without uh, causing anxiety, eruption, and suspicion. And they're very, very anxious at this stage of the process not to want to do that. That's why the Zonda Commando are saying, give the young babies to the old women. Because the only other solution to that, from the Nazi perspective, would be once you get to the line with Mengele and you're a young, fit woman for work and you're holding a baby, would be to take the baby from you. And they had a lot of issues and problems with that, so much so that they would normally send the mother and child to be killed. But actually, once they started realizing they were looking for more labor, they were trying, to, trying as they saw, saw it, to solve that problem. And doctors are obviously instrumental in solving that problem, which is sending them off one way. But so it seems to me as an example of how you can have a total inversion of all ethics and morals that you, any decent person might believe, and you see them at Auschwitz. It's in what happened to Frieda there. I'm sorry this is so depressing, by the way, but it's kind of inevitable with it. Finally, talk briefly about medical experiments. There's a whole host of medical experiments that the Nazis are, uh, uh, doctors are organizing, uh, most of which involve murdering people. What you're witnessing here, uh, the guy second from the right is Dr. Rascher. This is a doctor who, at Dachau, uh, conducted a whole series of infamous experiments on a variety of experiments. What he's doing here is he's freezing this person to death. Um, this is somebody who is going to be put in this tank, which is steadily frozen and frozen and frozen. They're doing that ostensibly to try and provide data for the Luftwaffe on the best ways of I don't know how long a pilot, a downed pilot, can survive in, in, in uh, uh, freezing waters. They're fighting a war, of course, uh, um, shooting, uh, attacking British convoys that are going up to Murmansk, and the planes are sh can be shot down there. Uh, and uh, the waters around there are, of course, notoriously freezing. So how, how do we know the best clothing to put on our pilots for that? How do we know how long our pilots can survive when it's worth rescuing them or not? Well, we can test how long people can survive in freezing water, and we can test them there. Himmler takes an incredible interest in this particular experiment, and there's documents showing how he's corresponding with Rascher about this. And to give you an idea of the kind of, of macabre horror that we're talking about here, um, uh, Himmler is, they're talking about how to revive someone who's unconscious as a result of hypothermia. And Himmler suggests to Rascher um, what you should do is it's, uh, um, it's well known that fisher folk um, uh, uh, would, would revive their, their husbands who had come back frozen from fishing by the, the, the wives of them, uh, naked, would hug them and hug them and their warmth would, um, would revive them. So we need to try that. So w one time they tried, someone, they tried to revive this frozen unconscious person by putting two um, naked uh, women prisoners just to try and hug him back to life. There's no record of what happened. But can you imagine, imagine in any way being, being this is what, this is, this is, what is happening here and this is happening to further, as he saw it, the career of Dr. Rasher. 
as, uh, in terms of medical experiments, you remember uh, Dr. Ebel we were talking about earlier who ran the Brandenburg Euthanasia Center? Uh, Dr. Ebel was only in his 20s when he, he was doing this, and he was extremely ambitious. And one way he saw his ambition going was, as an ambitious doctor, he wanted to please the very, very top doctors. And so what he did was he built a relationship up with a very distinguished professor, Professor Julius Hallevorden of the Kaiser William Institute for Brain Research in Berlin. He built a relationship with him, and he sent brains to him from newly murdered people. Uh, Dr. Hallevorden was particularly interested in children's brains, and there was a ready supply from the work of Dr. Ebel, and he would send them to Professor Hallevorden. And then after the war, Professor Hallevorden was questioned about what he was doing taking these brains. And he said this, those brains offered wonderful material. It really wasn't my concern where they came from. Uh, Professor Hallevorden was never prosecuted for any crime. In fact, what happened to him after the war is he went on to be the director of another uh, very distinguished research institution. He received a, a medal for his work and died um, as an incredibly distinguished medic at the age of 82. Uh, in Auschwitz, of course, there is a huge amount of medical research going on, not just Dr. Mengele, but also sterilization experiments under uh, uh, Professor uh, Klauberg, and all sorts of other experiments are happening there, all of them unbelievably painful for the poor people who were subjected to them, all of them murderous, killing large numbers of people. They were also assisted in this by prisoners who arrived who were doctors. In fact, uh, I was told once by uh, somebody at Auschwitz that prisoner, a former prisoner at Auschwitz, that they witnessed one transport where they would shout out, "Twins and doctors come forward! Twins and doctors come forward!" Uh, the twins they wanted, Mengele wanted because he's experimenting particular interest with twins. The doctors he wanted to come forward because they wanted doct uh, prison doctors um, to perform a whole variety of medical functions within the camp, and also to he, Mengele was looking for assistance. And one of these doctors, prisoners, uh, uh, Dr. Nisley, he actually wrote a book after the war, a very famous book about being a doctor in Auschwitz, talking about working with Mengele. And he talked about the research that was happening there and the advantages of being in Auschwitz for medical research. And he said, where under normal circumstances can one find twin brothers who die at the same place and at the same time? But at Auschwitz, there were several hundred sets of twins and therefore as many possibilities of dissection. So a number of these doctors, a number of these SS doctors certainly, saw this as a tremendously useful career institution. That actually they are able to have free reign of human experimentation to, as they saw it, further medical research, but actually in many, many cases, particularly in Mengele's case, to further their own career. So, what does this mean for us? Well, uh, I, one of the most important people I've ever met in my life was a man called Toivi Blatt, who was a Zonderkommando at Sobibor. Uh, Zonderkommandos, as I mentioned, Sobibor death camp. Uh, Zonderkommando, as I mentioned, were very often tormented people because they were Jews who were, had been selected to assist the Nazis in the functioning of a death camp. And at Sobibor, that meant that Toivi would be involved in shaving the hair of women before they entered the gas chamber. He was involved in packing up belongings to the Jews and so on before they were sent back. 
and they were tormented people because some of the Jews arriving there knew what was going to happen to them and would confront them about what they were doing and saying, is this what you're prepared to do to live? Of course, Tovey wasn't supposed to live. The Nazis wanted every single person involved in that process who was Jewish to die. He only survived because they managed, they managed to organize an enormous courage. They managed to organize uh, a breakout in 1943. But I asked Toivi what he'd taken from his life. What could he have learned from it? And he said this to me. People ask me, what did you learn? And I think I'm only sure of one thing. Nobody knows themselves. All of us could be good people or bad people in these different situations. And that's what I think about a very, very great deal. And in the context of doctors, it seems to me that we must think a number of things. The first is, this is not a particularly German phenomenon necessarily. In the Soviet Union, doctors played a crucial role in falsely diagnosing perfectly sane people as mentally ill, who were dissidents, in order to send them to mental asylums, where many of them became mentally ill as a result of their treatment. And doctors did that in the Soviet Union. I myself have met a doctor in Japan who participated in the most horrendous, murderous medical experiments. He witnessed, he witnessed them in China. The Japanese war in China is one of the least understood and least reported wars here in the West. But what the Japanese are doing in China, the level of, of particularly the level of atrocities, the level of medical experiments, human and biologic, of biological and chemical experiments on human beings, really rivals any horror that's ever been ever been committed. It seems to me, and he witnessed. I won't burden you with what he was witnessing, but he was witnessing the most vile and horrible experiments. And after the war, he served some time in a Chinese. He was captured by the Chinese. He served some time in a Chinese prison, released back to Japan, where he became a hugely beloved general practitioner. Uh, he had absolutely no trace of this left. He became a hugely beloved general practitioner. So I'll leave you, uh, so as to give some time for questions, I'll leave you with uh, a quote from an Auschwitz prisoner that uh, I found, an Auschwitz survivor that I found in, in uh, Jay Lifton's definitive huge work on Nazi doctors, uh, which is an extraordinary magnum opus. But this quote, it seems to me to be apposite here, which is the doctor, if not living in moral situations, in a moral situation where limits are very clear, is very dangerous. So on that happy note, I'll stop now. <laughs>